makes the good news make sense. If I don't plead when instruction is violated the law, then the good news will seem foolishness, it will seem offensive, but once you understand you violated that law, then that good news becomes good news indeed. Now in the same way, if I approach you a penitent sinner, someone whose understanding is darkened and say Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, it will be foolishness to him and offensive to him. Foolishness because it won't make sense. The Bible says that. The preaching of the cross is to them to perish foolishness. And offensive because I'm insinuating he's a sinner when he doesn't think he is. As far as he's concerned, there are plenty of people far worse than him. If I take the time to follow the footsteps of Jesus, then they make more sense. If I take the time to open up the divine law, the Ten Commandments, and show the sinner precisely what he's done wrong, that he has offended God by violating his law, then when he becomes, as James says, convinced of the law as a transgressor, the good news of the fine being painful will not be foolishness, it will not be offensive, it will be the power of God and the salvation. Now those three thoughts in mind, by way of introduction, let's now look at Romans 3, verse 19, to look at some of the functions of God's law for humanity. Now we know that what's of the things the law says, it says to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, Lord and Lord may become guilty before God. So one function of God's law is to stop sinners' mouths, to stop them justifying themselves and saying there's plenty of people worse than that bad person will. But the law stops the mouth of justification, that means the whole world, not just the Jews, but the whole world guilty before God. Romans 3 verse 20, next verse. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall all flesh be justified in his sight, and by the law is the knowledge of sin. God's law tells us what sin is. Romans 7 verse 7, Paul says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I have not known sin, but by the law. Galatians 3 24, verse 4, The law is our schoolmaster who brings to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. So another function of God's law is to act as a schoolmaster, to bring us to Jesus Christ, that we might be justified through faith in his blood. The law doesn't help us, it just leaves us helpless. It doesn't justify us, it just leaves us guilty before the judgment bow of Almighty God. And the tragedy of modern vandalism is because around the turn of the century, when for some reason it forsook the law and its to drive sinners to Christ, modern vandalism had to find another reason for sinners to respond to the gospel. And the issue that modern evangelism chose to attract sinners was the issue of life enhancement. The gospel degenerated into Jesus Christ will give you peace, joy, love, fulfillment, and lasting happiness. Now, to illustrate the unscriptural nature of this very popular teaching, I'd like you to listen very carefully to this following editor, because the essence of what I'm saying pivots on this particular point. So please listen carefully, and I trust I'm not speaking too quickly. I know that we're editing this down to, from one hour to about 35 minutes, but I'm trying to speak quickly to get it through, so I trust you listen quickly also. Two men are seated in a plane. The first is given a parachute and told to hold on as it would improve his flight. He's a little skeptical at first as he can't see how when a parachute plane could possibly improve the flight. After time, he decides to experiment and see if the claim is true. As he puts it on, he notices the weight of it upon his shoulders and he finds he has difficulty in sitting upright. However, he consoles himself with the fact that he has told the parachute would bring the fight, so he decides to give him a little time. As he waits, 
You know since he saw the other passengers as a laughing you know, because he's wearing a parachute to play. He begins to feel somewhat humiliated. As they begin to point and laugh and he can stand it no longer. He slings in his seat on straps of parachute and throws to the floor. Disillusionment and bitterness fill his heart because as far as he was concerned, he was told that white lie. The second man is given a parachute, but listen to what he's told. He's told to put it on because at any moment he'd be jumping 25,000 feet out of the plane. He gratefully puts the parachute on, he doesn't notice the weight upon his shoulders, nor he counts it upright. His mind is consumed with what would have to, but he jumped without that parachute. Now let's analyze the motive and the result of each passenger's experience. The first man's motive for putting the parachute on was solely to improve his flight. The result of his experience was that he was humiliated by the passengers, and it was disillusioned somewhat and good against those who gave him the parachute. As far as he's concerned, it'd be a long time before one gets one of those things on his back again. The second man put the parachute on solely to escape the jump to come, and because of his knowledge of what would happen to him without it, he has a deep-rooted joy and peace in his heart knowing that he's safe from sure death. This knowledge gives him the ability to withstand the mockery of the other passengers. His attitude to those who gave him the parachute is one of heartfelt gratitude. Now listen to what the modern gospel says. It says, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ to give you love, joy, and peace, and fill with a lasting happiness. In other words, Jesus will improve his life. So the sinner responds, and in an experimental fashion puts on the Savior to see if the claims are true. What does he get? The promise, temptation, tribulation, and persecution. The other person is mocked. So what does he do? He takes off the Lord Jesus Christ as offended for the Lord's sake. His disillusion is somewhat embittered, and quite, quite and so. He was promised peace, joy, and love, the fulfillment of lasting happiness, and only God with trials and humiliation. His bitterness is directed at those who gave him the so-called good news. His latter end becomes worse than the first, and now they're calculated and bitter backslide. Saints, instead of preaching that Jesus improves the flight, we should be warning the passengers that they don't have to jump out of the plane. It is the point of a man who wants to die, and after this the judgment. A real sinner understands the horrific consequences of breaking God's law, then he will flee to the Savior, solely to escape the wrath that's to come. If we're true and faithful witnesses, that's what we're preaching. But there is wrath to come that God commands all men everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. You see, the issue isn't one of happiness, but one of righteousness. Doesn't matter how happy a sinner is, how much he's enjoying the pleasures of sinful season, without the righteousness of Christ, he'll perish on the day of wrath. Scripture says, riches profit not on the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Peace and joy are legitimate fruits of salvation. But it's not legitimate to use these fruits as a joy of for salvation. If we continue to do so, sinners respond with impurity, lacking repentance. Now, can you remember why the second passenger had joy and peace in his heart? It's because he knew that parachute was going to save him from sure death. And as a believer, I have, as the Apostle Paul says, joy and peace in believing, because I know that the righteousness of Christ is going to deliver me from the wrath is to come. Now, therefore, in mind, let's take a close look at the incident over the plane. We have a brand new stewardess. She's carrying a tray of one hot coffee. It's her first day. She wants to leave the pressure of the passengers, and she certainly does. Because as she's walking down the aisle, she trips over someone's foot and slips one hot coffee all over the lap of our second passenger. Now, what's his reaction is that one of the witnesses turned to flesh. 
does he go, damn that hurt, mm-hmm. he feels the pain. But then does he whip the parachute from his shoulders, throw him on the floor and say that stupid parachute? No, why shouldn't he? He didn't put the parachute on for better flight, he put it on to save him from the jump to come. If anything, the hard coffee incident causes him to climb tighter than the parachute and deeper more forward than the jump. Now, if I put on the Lord Jesus Christ for the white mountain to flee from the rapids to come, when tribulations fights or the flight gets lumpy, we won't get angry at God, we won't lose our joy or peace, why should we? We didn't come at Christ for a heavy lifestyle, it came to have our sins forgiven to escape the rapids to come, if anything. Tribulation drives the true believer closer to the Savior. And sadly, we have literally no choice of professing Christians who lose their joy and peace when the flight gets lumpy. Why? By the product of a man's and the gospel, they came lacking repentance without what you can't be saved. I was in Australia some time ago. Australia was a small island off the coast of New Zealand. But I preached sin, war, righteousness, holiness, judgment, repentance, and hell. Now I wasn't exactly crushed, but now the people want to give their hearts to Jesus. In fact, the air went very tense. After the meeting, I said, there's a young man over there who wants to give his life to Christ. So I went down the back found a teenage lad who could not pray the sinner's prayer because he was weeping so profusely. That was so refreshing for me, because for many years, I suffered from the disease of evangelistic frustration. I so wanted sinners to respond to the gospel by unwittingly preached a man-centered message, the essence of which was this. You'll never find true peace without Jesus Christ, you've got your back in your heart of the dark in the field. I preach Christ crucified, I preach repentance, a sinner would respond to the altar, and open an eye and say, oh no. This guy wants to give his heart to Jesus, and this is an 80% chance he's going to backslide. And I am tired of committing backslides. So I'm going to make sure this guy really means it. He better be sincere. So I approach the poor guy to stop on spirit. I walk up and say, why do you want? I say, I'm going to become a Christian. I say, do you mean it? So yes, I do. Really mean it. I said, yeah, I reckon. So okay. Pray this prayer off of me and mean it from your heart sincerely. And really mean it from your heart sincerely. And really mean it from your heart. Sincerely. Oh God, I'm a sinner. He said, oh, oh God, I'm a sinner. And I said, then why isn't there a visible sign of contrition? There's no way I believe it. It's the guy's inwardly sorry for his sins. If I could see his motive, I would say that he was 100% sincere. He really did sincerely mean this decision with all his heart. He sincerely wanted to give this Jesus thing and God was able to get a buzz out of it. He tried sex, God from terrorists and alcohol. Why don't give this Christian life to go to save his kids and his Christian sailors preached to him off and told him lost in heaven? He wasn't waiting for the wrath that was to come, because I hadn't told him there was wrath to come. It was his clear admission to my message. He wasn't broken in contrition. Because the poor guy didn't know what sin was. Romans 7 verse 7, Paul said, I have not known sin, but by the law. After a man repents, he doesn't know what sin is. Any so-called repentance, if you know the right word, horizontal repentance, is coming because he's lied to man, he's stolen from man. But when David sinned with Bathsheba, and by all ten of the Ten Commandments, when he counted his neighbor's wife, lived in life, stole his neighbor's wife, committed adultery, committed murder, Dishonored his parents and thus dishonored God. He himself sinned against man. He said against you and your only by sinning that is evil in your sight. When Joseph was turned in sexually, he said, How can I do this thing and sin against God? 
the prodigal sons that I have sinned against heaven, hold preach repentance towards God, and the Bible says God is all rich repentance. And the man doesn't understand that his sin is primarily vertical against God, he will not exercise biblical repentance. It will be merely superficial, experimental, and horizontal, and therefore waiting for the temptation and persecution comes. Biblical evangelism is always, without exception, war to the proud and grace to the humble. Never will you see Jesus giving the gospel, the grace of our God, the cross, to a proud, arrogant, self-righteous person. Now with the war, he breaks the hard heart with the gospel, he heals the broken heart. Why? Because he always did those things that please the Father. God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Jesus told us when the gospel is foolish, he destroyed the laws upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, the broken hearted, the captives, and the blind. They are spiritual statements, born spirit, contrite, are taken captive by Satan who is more blinded by the God of this world. Only the sick in the position, and only those who are convinced of the disease, will appreciate an appropriate cure. Luke 10 25. The Gabriel go ahead of you all paraphrase somewhat for the sake of time. A certain warrior stood up and turned to Jesus and said, How can I get everlasting life? Now, most of us, if approached by someone asking how they can get everlasting life, would say, Quickly, say this prayer before you change your mind. But what did Jesus do with this potential convert? He pointed them to the law of God. He said, What is written in the law? Why did he do that? Because the man was proud, arrogant, self righteous. He was a professing expert in God's law. The strongest question was, and why you are directed to get everlasting life. So Jesus said, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? He said, I shall let the Lord your God in your heart, mind, soul, and strength, not your neighbors yourself. Jesus said, This too, and you shall live. And then scripture says, But he, willing to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who's my neighbor? The living Bible brings out more clearly the effect of the law on man. It said the man wanted to justify his lack of love for some kinds of people, so he asked, which labels? So he didn't find Jews, but he didn't like Samaritans. So Jesus told him a story that we commonly call the good Samaritan, who was not good at all. And loving his labels as much as he loved himself, he merely obeyed the basic requirements of God's law, and the effect of the essence of the law, the spirituality of the law, about the law of minds and truth, is that man's mouth was stopped. As he didn't love his labor that degree, the law was given to stop every mouth and leave the whole world guilty before God. Similarly, in Luke 18, verse 18, when the rich young ruler, how can he get everlasting life? Jesus gave him five horizontal commandments. Then when he said, I'll get those, Jesus said, he used the essence of the first of the ten commandments to show this man that his God was his money, and he cannot serve God and man. It was the grace being given to the humble in the case of Nicodemus, a godly Jew, a leader in Israel, a teacher in Israel, thoroughly versed in God's will, humble heart. The claim acknowledging the deity of the Son of God would only come from God for no man can do these miracles that you do unless God is with him. So Jesus gave this godly Jew the knowledge of sin, a humble heart, and good news of the fine being painful. Same with Nathaniel, who was an Israelite indeed, and there was no guile. Following verse to the world, and there was a schoolmaster to bring him to Christ. Same with the devout Jews on the day of Pentecost. Godly Jews, thoroughly soaked in the law of God. Therefore, Peter just made grace, and they cried out, Man of Brethren, what shall we do? And there was a schoolmaster. 
to remember Christ also. Now some of you the one verse 8. But we know that the law is good if anyone uses it lawfully for the purpose for which it was designed. What was the law designed for? Following verse tells us, the law was not made for a righteous man, but for sinners, even lesser sinners. Next verse, homosexuals, fornicators. For every homosexual Christ, give him the Ten Commandments. Surely he is damned, despite his perversion. Want to bring a Jew to Christ? Let the law prepare his heart for grace. Want to bring a Muslim to Christ? Give him the law of Moses. Muslims accept Moses as a prophet. We'll let the law strip them of self-righteousness. And have a Muslim reading a book, How's Best Kept Secret? And God soundly saved them. Purely through the reading of the book. Why? Because the law of the Lord is perfect for God and the soul. Think of a woman caught in the act of adultery. The law called for her blood. She found herself between a rock and a hard place. Her only avenue was to free herself of the feet of the Son of God, and that's the function of the law, to condemn. You say, but God condemns us? Saints that already condemned. John 3 verse 18, he that believes not, is condemned already. All the law does is show him his true state. Like this, ladies, you dust down a table in your living room. It's clean. Then you draw back the curtains and wait in the early morning sunlight. What do you see on the table? Dust. What do you see in the air? Dust. Did the light create the dust? No, the light really exposed the dust. And when you take the time to draw back the curtains of the Holy of Holies, and let the light of God's law shine upon the sinner's heart, all that happens is that he sees himself in truth. The commandment is a lamp, and the world is light. That's why Paul said, by the commandment, sin became exceedingly sinful. I think it may be beneficial to share with you how I witness personally. I would never go up to a non-Christian and say Jesus loves you. Totally unbiblical, no scriptural basis whatsoever. No precedent in scripture. I wouldn't even say, I'd like to talk to you about Jesus Christ. If you were in a deep sleep, I wouldn't use a flashlight to awaken you. I'd use a light to know. Very gentle, the sermon light must be gentle with the old man. First the natural, then the spiritual, because the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, but foolishness to it. Examples in John 4, which Jesus dealt with in the world. First the natural, then swing into the spiritual, or conviction using the law specifically seventh commandment, and then he will feel himself to So when I do the wrong question, I usually use one of my gospel tracks. We saw millions of tracks, mainly because they're so unique, they're really different from normal tracks. This is what I use often to break ice. They say, excuse me, which one of these looks longer to your faithful group? It's obviously the faith. Now, Carl, can you see that boy you are? The boy looks better than the big boy's boy. I said, what are you doing? So she said, I'll pick him up. She breaks out to the same size. You can have that. I said, hey, thanks. Hey, thanks. I said, I got another gift for you. It's my wallet. And I give him my wallet. And bring the credit cards. It's actually a gospel track. People steal this track and say, they must have. Let me teach you how you can get this track out. Watch closely. So I said, here's another gift for you. Well, hey, they say, yeah, I'm going to fumble the visit work tomorrow. Thanks. I said, another gift for you. And I give them a penny with the Ten Commandments pressed into it. It is legal to do this. We have a machine that does it. 
great pleasure pushes the, pushes the change of almonds into a pendulum to the thumbnail if you want to hold still. So I said, here's a gift for you. He says, hey, thanks, what is it? I said, it's the pendulum with the change of almonds on it. And what I'm doing is putting out a feeler to see if he's open to spiritual things. He says, ah, oh, change of almonds. Cool, the whole ten of them. See, most people aren't a fan of other ten commandments. Show up, kill. Yeah, that's a good idea. So, God's will doesn't offend that sense. So I see he's open, so I say, hey, you think you've kept the ten commandments? Oh, yeah, pretty much. I haven't killed anyone. Yep. I say, hey, let's go through this. It's okay. So I give it all why. It's not, you don't want to. See, what does that make you? This is all sin. I said, no, 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 more specifically, what does it make you? She said, no, 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 I said, well, how many lines do you have to tell me why? Ten of the bellies, book, crush a forehead? Is it true you tell one lie that makes you a liar? He says, yeah, you're right. I said, why is this a lie? I said, they were stolen something. He says, no, no. I said, come on, you just admitted to me you're a liar. I said, they were stolen something even with small. He says, yeah. I says, what does that make you? He says, a thief. I said, now Jesus said, if you look at a woman and lost off the hood, you could adopt her within your heart, even though that is a year plenty of times. He said, by your own admission, you're lying, thieving, adulterer, and hot, and you have to face God on judgment day. You want to hit the three of the Ten Commandments. If you use God's name in vain, he says, yeah, yeah, I've been trying to try to stop you, it's been a hell of a lot. He said, instead of using the form of the first word beginning with the S, you've taken the name of God, the holy name of the Creator, the one who gave you life, and the born down the living with that first word and expressed disgust. That's called blessing. The Bible says, the Lord and all holding to him, guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now the wonderful thing about God's law is that it's written upon his heart. So all the commandments, the work of the law is written in your heart. The conscience bearing witness. Conscience means with knowledge. Con is with science is knowledge. With knowledge, conscience. So every time he lies, steals, lusts, meets the door and fornicates, he knows in his heart that he's doing wrong. Look at the commandments, we'll just touch on a couple of them. If you have no other gods before me, that means God who created commands that give you the focal point of your affections. We command you to love the Lord our God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. To a point where our love for God seems so great that our love for mom and dad, brother and sister, and our own life should seem like hatred compared to the love we have for the God who gave those loved ones to us. None of us can say I've kept the first of the Ten Commandments. The Bible says, there is none that understands, there is none that seeks out the God. If you don't make yourself a graven image, that means you shouldn't make a God with your hands or your mind. When people say, oh, my God is a God of wrath and judgment, my God is a God of love and mercy, you've never created hell. Someone says they agree with him. So you're right, your God would never create hell, because he couldn't. He doesn't exist. It's a figment of your imagination, the place of imagery. You shaped an image of God to suit yourself. You said, I'm the power, you declare you made God to suit yourself. All the sooner the Bible says, our God is not here the kingdom of God. So the law leaves us guilty. So I say to him, when you stand before God on judgment day, and he judges you by the standing of that law, you think you're so guilty. He says, God, guilty. So you think you're going to go to hell, and the usual answer is, Heaven. So why is that? You think God is good? You don't look at senses and yell at it. God is good. So we'll try that in the court of war and you've committed murder. The judge is anything to say before I pass sentence. All the evidence is that you'll kill me. Anything to say, you say yes. 
I just like to say, Judge, I think you're a good man, and you'll overlook my crimes. Judge, you probably say you're right about one thing. I am a good man, and because of my goodness, I'm going to see that justice is done. Because of my goodness, I'm going to see you punished. And the very thing that sinners are hoping will save them on the day of judgment, the goodness of God, will be the very thing that will condemn them. Because if God is good, he must, by nature, punish murderers, rapists, thieves, liars, or sin, wherever we found. See, the law makes us hunger and thirst after righteousness. If you had a disease, I would first convince you of disease before I told you about the cure. And the more I told you about the disease, the more your heart would say, Hey, where's the cure? Is there a cure? And that's the function of God's law. It makes us hunger and thirst after righteousness. Charles Spurgeon said they will never accept grace until they tremble before just and holy war. Since the law works, it converts his soul. It makes a man a woman a new creature in Christ, so that all things pass away, all things become new. It works, it converts his soul. So find yourself a sinner and experiment on it. But remember this one anecdote as you do. You're sitting in a plane, you're sucking your coffee, you're buying your cookie, you're watching a movie. It's a good movie. It's a pleasurable flight. When suddenly you hear, this is your captain speaking an announcement to make as the tail section just pulled up his plane. Using God's law will produce tear-filled converts. This one comes, why? Because he wants to escape the fires of hell. But because the law hasn't been impressed against his conscience to show him sin is exceedingly sinful and he deserved hell, then he doesn't understand mercy. He has no appreciation for the cross. There's no gratitude in his heart for the unspeakable gift. And gratitude is the prime motivation for evangelism. There will be no zeal in the heart of a false convert to evangelize. But this one comes knowing his sin against God himself. And if God in his holiness was to make bare all the secret sins of his heart, all the deeds done in darkness, all the wickedness, and lay it out as evidence of his guilt, God in his holiness could pick him up as an unclean thing, and cast him into hell and do that which is just. But instead of giving him justice, God has given him mercy. He commanded his love to warn him that why should a sinner Christ died for me, falls on his knees before the cross of Calvary, and says, Oh, God, if you do that for me, I'll do anything for you. I delight to do the will of my God. No more is written upon my heart. And like the man who really had to pass through the door and face the consequences of breaking the law of gravity, would never take his parachute off because he's pretty light dependent on it. So he who comes to the Savior, knowing he has to face the Holy God on the day of wrath, would never forsake the righteousness of God in Christ because his very life depends on it. Let me see if I can graduate this teaching as we begin to pull the applause. Which is a meaningless picture statement. Hold this in Philippians chapter 3. Finally, I brethren, two more chapters. I was in a store in Long Beach, a man was serving another man using God's name in blasphemy. He blasphemed the name of God so many times, I flew between him and his customer and said, Excuse me, is this a religious need? He said, What? H.E.L. Illinois. I said, Yes, it is, because now you're talking about hell. Let me give you all my books. So I went out of my van and got a book that I've written called God Doesn't Believe in Atheists. Proof the Atheist Doesn't Exist. It's a book that uses logic, humor, reason, and rationalism to prove the existence of God without the use of faith that it can be absolute and proves the Atheist doesn't exist. It's a possible book. He called me two or three months later, so he's been out of his room, 
least three other books once committed by two James Kennedy. And the three Hell's Biscuit secret tape where I'm speaking slower, and it's the whole teaching, it's the hell of teaching. We have an audio tape series to equip you with evangelism. How to use the law, how to witness effectively, true and false conversion, how to obtain zeal, and 12 other teachings all on copyright. When you get the tape series, the 16 tapes, you get those five books completely free, and there's a video series. And when you get the video series, 10 different teachings, you get 10 of our titles completely free, and you want a free trip to our life to your expense. And also, Sample packs of tracks with the 29 billion unique tracks in a sample pack or on the table out there with three dollars of packs. So please feel free to avoid yourselves with those. Thank you so much for listening to the Gold Bush Review.